calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Keegan. I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. Hi, hi, hi. Hi. It's our first full-length episode of the year. Yep. Of 2020. 2020. Oh, God. I'm a million years old. I Fucking feel so old. wild. So I we decided it. to open the year up with doing a forgotten favorite. Yes. Yeah, so... Those are, those are our... At least they're my favorites to do. Well, and for it, the most part, it made it kind of easy for us because Coming I don't out know of the holidays. Yeah, I don't know oh, about God. you, but I was on a full like island for the entire week between Christmas and New Year's. I didn't do shit. I watched like all the Harry Potter movies. I watched like all the Star Wars movies. Yeah, <laughs> I had my mom in town. I had friends that visited. I yeah, I was not living in a normal world. I haven't worked in almost two weeks. It's been weird, and I gotta tell you, though, I had a really hard time picking someone. I did almost four complete research on four different people. Why'd you keep changing your mind? I didn't because there either wasn't enough information or I wasn't feeling it. A lot of it was a lack of information. Like, there was someone that I was gonna do who I still want to do in the future, but I think it needs more time because Mm -hmm. it's very recent. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of information about them. That can become difficult. Like, when you're choosing a forgotten feminist favorite, like, the whole point is that a lot of people haven't, like, heard yes. about them. So sometimes you can find yourself in a predicament where there's not a whole lot of information. Yes. Like, My person is not forgotten. The name is actually probably one of the most notable names in feminism. Okay. But there's a lot of information about the person because they've been in it for so long mm-hmm. that we don't, maybe it's not at the forefront of our minds. And I want to learn more about this person. So. Sounds good. I'm not going first, but you'll find out okay, a little bit. Great. But I was very interested in learning more about this person. So I want to know who you're talking about this week, Keegan. Okay, so I kind of had the opposite situation as Girl, you. like send uh, me some information then. Uh, well, no, I mean, a lot of times I really struggle with who to pick, and yeah. it takes me a really long time to decide. And this time I kind of was like, you know what? I'm just going to pick somebody. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do a little bit of reading. 
And so I pulled up a Marie Claire article that had like, you know, I don't know, 20 different feminists on it. And I did like each, you know, each one had a paragraph. And so I yeah. went and I read through That's all of them. I and I found one that I was just like, okay, I like this person. Let's, let's go. And then I was, that was it. I was like, I'm going to do it on that Ugh, person. Um, so who? I want to know. Because so, maybe, I, maybe I thought of this person too. I am going to be talking about Polly Murray, who I am shocked that I didn't know about. Like, I'm actually very, very surprised. Polly? Polly, like P-A-U-L-I, not Polly, like P-O-L-L-Y. Right. Polly Murray. Murray, yes. I don't know this person at all. So she was born Anna Pauline Murray on November 20th, 1910 in Baltimore, Maryland, and her mother was Agnes Murray, and she died of a cerebral hemorrhage when Polly was only four years old. Oh, no. So... Yeah, like already, I mean, she was essentially orphaned because right after that, her father, William, who was a popular English teacher at a local high school, um, he came down with typhoid, typhoid fever, and it it was only, I think, maybe a year or so, like, after her mother's death did he get sick, and then as a result of the typhoid, he ended up having, like, long-term consequences from it because he'd had typhoid fever for a couple of years. When he first came down with it, they went ahead and sent... Polly and her siblings to various relatives throughout the country. So That's so sad. It's very what, sad. Remind me what year this is again. So she was born in 1910. So I think around like 1915. Yeah. Um, they sent her to go live with her aunt Pauline. Okay. And her grandparents in in North Carolina. So after the kids were sent away, her father continued to get like sicker and sicker, <sighs> and even though he mostly recovered from typhoid fever, it ended up doing damage. I don't know how it works, but it did damage to him um, mentally. I think it's also just like if you have a fever in general for a certain amount of time that can affect you. But then, yeah, I think that there are certain illnesses where it'll have lingering effects because it's, it's something attacking your body. And if it's that way for so long, I can see where there would be yeah, it, it had psychological effects on him. So he oh. ended up having mental and emotional problems. Oh, dear. And he was sent to the psychiatric wing of Crownsville State Hospital, which was also called the Hospital for the Negro Insane of Maryland. Mm. So um, both of her parents identified as black. And so her father was confined to this basically mental institution for black I have a feeling he wasn't treated very well. He was not treated very well. In fact, he was murdered by a white guard (gasps) in 1923 when he was beat to death. Um, Oh, my God. Pauline was 13 at the time, and she had hoped uh, whenever she grew up that she could take custody of her dad and take care of him. and, like, have a relationship with him in some way. Mm -hmm. But, unfortunately, she never got the chance because he passed away when she was 13. That is something we should talk about during Mental Health Awareness Mm -hmm. Month is the history of... Like, psych wards, mental hospitals, the treatment of patients. My friend was in a hospital a few years ago, and she, you know, brought herself in. But then as soon as she was in, she was like, oh, my God, get me the fuck out. Like, these people... Mm -hmm. It was crazy. And and it can be difficult to get yourself out, too. Like, once you're in, it can be hard to get yourself out. It is. Yeah, and it would be especially interesting. I was doing... I I wasn't trying to focus on this, and I already have, like, six pages of notes. So I I didn't want to spend too long looking at it. But there is a Wikipedia page for Crownsville State Hospital, and the history of it is interesting because... I think it was erected, I mean, this is the early 1900s, and I think it was erected in, like, the late 1800s, whenever they decided, like, hey, you know, black people can be mentally, like, 
ill, Ill. as well. And, like, what do we do with these people? Because you (laughs) You you can't put them with white people. No, they have to have their own... Can't do that. You know, psychiatric hospital. So that's whenever they created this hospital. So I I bet you the history is really fascinating and probably really sad. Haunted as fuck, too. That, yeah, we're totally gonna... That is so fascinating to me. I was never in a hospital, but I know a lot of people who were. Mm-hmm. I was lucky, lucky enough that I was in kind of like homes yeah. that had medical care and things like that, so it's a little bit different. But but it's really sad because, you know, this man was a very popular, well-liked English teacher. Yeah. He was kind of like, he went to Howard University. And he got sick. Mm-hmm, and it made him ill. It's not like, you know... So and then he got killed. Yeah, and then he got killed. So poor Polly at this point. Polly. She is 13 and now officially orphaned. Oh. Um, Gosh. But she's been living with her Aunt Pauline and her grandparents basically from the time she was like five or so. So at least she has hopefully positive support from her family. She does. So her Aunt Pauline was a school teacher and she often took young Polly with her to work. Mm -hmm. And so Polly began reading books and studying subjects that were far advanced for her grade level wise. Mm -hmm. So she was like really um, smart and really studious and wanted to learn. And so not only was her father a teacher, but her aunt Pauline, and then she had another aunt who also lived in that area in North Carolina, and they were both teachers as well. So, Polly lived in Durham, North Carolina until 1926, when at the age of 16, she graduated from Hillside High School in North Carolina, and then decided to move to New York, where she would attend a second high school in order to meet the entrance requirements for college. Interesting. So So in North Carolina, you could graduate at 16, but then if you wanted to live elsewhere or go to college, you had to go elsewhere? I'm guessing it was the level of education that she got at the high school in North Carolina. Like, maybe it didn't meet the credit requirements for college. So she went to um, New York. By herself at 16? By herself. Damn, girl. But she went to uh, live with a cousin named Maude. So. I love that name. Maud. I know. I love old names. I think they're, they're really fun. So even though Polly's parents identified as black, she had kind of a complicated mixed race background, like more distantly. Okay. So her... Her great, I mean, her parents looked black. She looks obviously mixed race. Y- yeah. You can tell that she's, she's black. Um, but her cousin Maud and her entire family were white passing. Oh. So they were mixed race, but they were white passing and they were living in a white neighborhood, which made it difficult for Very. for um, Polly to be there. Like, yeah, I mean, it, it is New York, which I think has always been, you know, it was in the North. It's not like living in the South where it's probably different, but it's still, if you're living in a white neighborhood in New York, that kind of goes with the implications of like... It's a different kind well, of... It's a different kind of racism. Like It's like a superiority um, kind of thing. I, um, it's a more subtle form of racism, but it still like very much exists. Oh, in, it totally, in it the totally North. does. Yeah. I can see, you know, I think of like the Hamptons, like white people mm-hmm. and just the the strong divide between the races at the time. Right. And and, and we're talking 1927. Exactly. So it's definitely well, very divided. civil rights. Yeah, everything. absolutely. Yeah. It's completely before any of that was going on. And so more than anything, I think that she just made their neighbors uncomfortable. Probably. Like, yeah, yeah, Like yeah. very uncomfortable. They had an eye on her, probably. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in 1927, Polly finished her second high school degree and she was inspired to attend Columbia University, but she was rejected because of her gender. So what you're going to see a lot with Polly Murray is there's 
a lot of intersections at play. She was kind of one of the first people to really point out um, what it's like to exist within these different margins and how they intersect together and how they make your life more difficult. Yeah. Um, Later on, we'll detail it, but, like, she actually even called out, like, the civil rights movement and stuff in, like, the 50s and 60s for not being inclusive to women. Yeah. You know, so... So, yeah. So, um, she couldn't attend their sister college, Bernard, because she couldn't afford it. So, she attended Hunter College, a free city college where she was one of the only people of color in attendance. Wow. She graduated in 1933 with a bachelor's in English, and she graduated right in the middle of the Great Depression. So, she wasn't really able to find work after this, Mm -hmm. and so she had to abandon her studies for a little while and go work. Polly had gotten married in secret in 1930 to a man named Roy Wynn. However, this marriage quickly fell apart. Uh, historian Rosalind Rosenberg said, Their honeymoon weekend spent in a cheap West Side hotel was a disaster, an experience that she later attributed to their youth and poverty. The truth was more complicated. As Polly explained in notes to herself a few years later, she felt repelled by the act of sexual intercourse. Mm. Part of her wanted to be a normal woman, but another part resisted. Why is it when men try to make love to me, something in me fights? Mm -hmm. So she had the marriage annulled. A few years later, like... Was there any history of, like, sexual assault that we know of with her? Not that we know of, but I think it'll become a little bit more clear here in a a couple paragraphs. All right, let's do it. So she took several jobs during the Depression, and one was as a remedial teacher, and she began, like, writing. She had several of her works published in the paper. But then she took a position at Camp Terra, which was a camp created by Eleanor Roosevelt to provide employment for young women. And there, she met Eleanor Roosevelt, and they actually developed, like, a lifelong friendship. Uh, They remained friends until Eleanor died a few decades later. Here, she also had her first reported relationship with a woman who was a white camp counselor named uh, Peg Holmes. That was my second guess. (laughs) Yes, yeah, so... I was wondering, there are, like, uh, theories that Eleanor Roosevelt was gay, I've heard so that I as thought well. you were gonna say that there. I thought you were gonna bring that up. Like maybe that was her. Well, like, I didn't read anything about that, but they did have a very close friendship. Um, and they could have just been a friendship. Yeah, it could have no, just been a friendship. We don't know. Just because they're gay doesn't mean they were together. We don't but know. <laughs> uh, so the camp's director, the uh, camp director at Camp Terra, disapproved of Polly partially because while Polly was there, she had some of her school textbooks, and some of them were communist literature, and so the camp director found that and yeah. was already like not about it. Uh, But then also when the camp director found out about Peg and Polly, it was a problem not only because it was a homosexual relationship, but it was also an interracial relationship. Peg and Polly. Peg and Polly. (laughs) So the two of them actually left the camp together and they they traveled the country walking, hitchhiking, and hopping freight trains. Yeah, girls, (laughs) do it. It's very unsafe, but like very live unsafe, your lives. but also <laughs> but love. But it's very romantic to it look is. back on now, knowing that they came out of it okay. I yeah, exactly. Um, Murray applied to the University of North Carolina in 1938 to attend their graduate program, but was rejected because of her race. So she was rejected from Columbia because of her, her gender. gender, and then she was rejected from the University of North Carolina because of her race. So. All schools and other public facilities in the state at the time were segregated by law. So this is kind of the first time when she starts becoming interested in civil rights. She's like, uh, this segregation shit, 
I'm not about it. No, it's got to end, man. So she began a national campaign to overturn their decision, and it was widely reported on in both black and white newspapers. She wrote to officials... um, talking about the university, she wrote to the university president, President Roosevelt, and she would release their responses, whatever they said back to her, she would release it in the newspaper. She would wow. publish it in That's the media. A great idea. It went in an attempt to embarrass them. It was like she was trying to shame them into doing the right thing, basically. Yeah. The NAACP initially was interested in taking her case, but later declined to represent her in court. NAACP leader Roy Wilkins opposed representing her because Murray had already released her correspondence, uh, which he considered to be not a diplomatic move. So he wrote to her. She had written to him asking for something. Yeah. He wrote back, and, it, and I'm guessing it was not so nice, and she published it. I was just going to say, I bet that girl published mm-hmm. it. Yep. And so it it upset him. It, yeah. He just, he phrased it in saying that it wasn't a diplomatic move. It wasn't mm-hmm. like a smart move. So um, there was part of, partly that, like he didn't want to represent her because of that. They also said that it had something to do with being like a New York case, but a lot of people speculate that there were concerns about her sexuality. She um wore pants instead of skirts and she was she she was very open about her relationships with women she didn't really try and hide it right well and as we know you know the NAACP did so much good but it was also very flawed system it was very flawed I mean the when we look at the history of intersectionality which we will do very soon Mm -hmm. you know the feminist movement wasn't inclusive to the black population mm-hmm. and the NAACP was not open to um, women in general and definitely when it came to different sexualities. Yeah, absolutely. That was like too much. You know, th- these different groups were very much like, let's focus at the task at hand. They weren't inclusive right. to yes, all. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, you know, you can understand that and sympathize with that to a certain degree. They're like, we one thing at a time. We yeah. want to get these things done uh, one thing at a time. But it makes it very difficult for people living in those intersections because you know, your, your they don't needs, have a way to turn. Right. Your needs aren't being met, really. Yeah. Like, not fully, either and where, way you go. And where is she supposed to go if the NAACP doesn't help her? Right. Exactly. You know? Exactly. So, in early 1940, uh, Murray was walking the streets of Rhode Island. She was distraught after the disappearance of a woman friend. So, people now speculate that um, this was, like, a romantic kind of yeah. relationship that had gone wrong and she was upset. So she was just walking around the street upset as you do. I've, I've definitely been in public being overly emotional and she was taken into custody by police, just picked up off the street and transferred to Bellevue hospital in New York city for psychiatric treatment. What the fuck? They basically picked her up. They were like, she's hysterical. And then they like threw her into psychiatric treatment at Bellevue. She's crying. Yeah. So in March, uh, Murray left the hospital and After probably experiencing horrible abuse. Probably, and she'd been there for a couple months, yeah. I think, at horrible. this point. So yeah, anytime you're being held without your consent, you know, you can only imagine it's not great. Well, and especially the fact that she is a gay black woman. Right. Right. And Doesn't so look good. she left the hospital with um her roommate and girlfriend Adeline McBean. They oh. left together. So, Did they meet in the hospital? I don't think so. I'm not sure. That I'm unclear about. I don't know if they were roommates in the hospital or roommates outside. I'm not I'm not sure. So um, Peg is gone. Peg is gone, yeah, okay. at this point. Uh so they took a bus to Durham to visit Pauline. And when they were in Virginia on their way to Durham, the two women, so Adeline McBean is also a black woman. So the two women moved out of the broken seats in the back of the bus and moved into 
the front section of the bus. Oh, God. I'm seeing so many parallels of other... I was thinking Ruby Bridges earlier mm -hmm, with the education, and mm -hmm. now I'm thinking Rules of Parks. Oh, and it all ties together, too. And that's what's amazing, is like, this is in in 1940. So this is years and years before Rosa Parks did what she did. Okay. So they moved into the white section. They had just had kind of an academic conversation about... um, Gandhian civil disobedience. Yeah. So they basically were like, we're going to try this like civil disobedience yeah. thing. So whenever people told them to move, they didn't move. They called the police and they still didn't move. So they were arrested and thrown in jail. Murray and McBean initially were defended by the NAACP, but when the pair were convicted only of disorderly conduct rather than violating segregation laws, the organization decided to stop representing them. So basically the NAACP only wanted to represent them if it was like a segregation issue, which it was, but they They weren't weren't charged with segregation laws. They were charged with disorderly conduct. So um, they withdrew their defense. It's a sneaky move by the Mm -hmm. court. Yeah, it is. Because... Again, while I think it's the wrong move, I also understand that the NAACP needs to be very careful about, like, how they move where forward. They, and where they put their support. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because... It's definitely a complicated Right, because this situation. can look like you're defending disorderly, you know, conduct. Yeah. And they're like, well, they're not being charged with any race-related law, so why are you here? Right, you know? we, have to, we have to defend those who are um, being charged with segregation laws. Right, I get that. right. Um, So the Workers' Defense League, the WDL, which is a socialist labor rights organization, um, and they were beginning to take on civil rights cases, they decided to um, pay her fine and get her out of jail. So a few months later, the WDL hired Murray for its administrative committee. And so while she was working with the WDL, Murray became active in a case of Odell Waller. Now, Odell Waller was a Virginia, Virginia sharecropper who was charged with murdering the landowner that he was working for. And he said that it was self-defense, that they had gotten into a dispute because the landowner refused to pay him uh, his portion of the shares or, like, give him his crop. Yeah. Uh, And so they got into a dispute and he killed him in self-defense. So... The WDL took interest in this, and they went down to help defend him, and they were, like, fighting to defend him. Polly Murray was very uh, instrumental in getting a lot of, like, national coverage for him and things like that. And she actually even wrote to Lady Eleanor Roosevelt on Waller's behalf, and Roosevelt, in turn, wrote to the Virginia governor, asking him to guarantee that the trial would be fair, Uh and she later persuaded the president to privately request to the governor to commute the death sentence of Waller when he was convicted. So, he was convicted by a jury of all white guys. Of course. (laughs) So, um, he ended up being convicted of first-degree murder, and unfortunately, despite all of that, and despite, like, their friendship... Uh, Polly and Eleanor's and all the work that they both did to try and save his life, it didn't work. He was put to death. Oh, no. Because of all this, Polly became very, very interested in civil rights law. Mm -hmm. And so in 1941, she began attending Howard University Law School. Wow. And she was... Where's she getting the money for all this? Dude, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Scholarships, maybe? I hope so. My God. And also, I mean, school was cheaper back then. Yeah, that's true. 
It's uh, amazing. She was the only woman in her law school class, and she was she became very very aware of sexism within black communities. Oh like, my gosh! You know, sexism within racism, and she called it Jane Crow, <laughs> basically <gasps> saying that it's like Jim Crow, but it's it affects black women differently, differently in a different way. So she called it Jane Crow, and actually, a lot of like the work that has been written about her. That is one of her, like, big, big overarching... Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. that's really cool. On Murray's first day of class, one professor, William Robert Ming, remarked that he did not know why women went to law school. <laughs> but he was like, he said, I think in one of the things that I watched on YouTube, he said, I don't know why women come to law school, but they're here, boys, so you just have to deal with it. Like, basically. I mean, that, he could say worse things. He could say worse things, he could say better things. <laughs> yeah. You know... <laughs> In 1942, while still in law school, Murray joined the Congress of Racial Equality, and later that year she published Negro's Youth's Dilemma, which challenged segregation in the U.S. military, which had continued up until the Second World War, which is insane, okay? Like, if you're out fighting and dying for your fucking country, like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. She also participated in sit-ins, and this was, again, in the 1940s. So she's participating in civil disobedience. We credit all these other people with, like, starting this kind of, like, civil disobedience movement. Yeah. And not to diminish, you know, Martin Luther King or anybody, like, not to diminish what they've done. Of course but not. I didn't know about... <laughs> yeah, about, we didn't grow up learning about these people. Yeah. But, I mean, I, what I think is interesting is that she was inspired by Gandhi. Yes. You know, that was something that, you know... People's inspirations and ideas come from other things. Like, if we were to really peel back the la- the layers of time mm-hmm. to see who, what inspired Gandhi, what inspired... Like, it's interesting how, you know, those people are all the backbones to what created the movements that we were taught in school. Right, you know? right, yeah. I mean, and then the idea of, like, sit-in, so, like, actively, like, going and peacefully protesting, yes. essentially, which is, of course, something that was later taken on by the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Yeah. So she um, she was participating in these things, and then she was elected Chief Justice uh, of Howard Court of Peers, which is the highest student position in Howard. Wow. And she is the only woman in the law department there yeah. at this time. And she got it. Yes, she got it. And yes, in 1944, girl. she graduated first in her class. Of course she did. So traditionally, men who graduated first in their class were awarded Julius Rosenwald fellowships for graduate work at Harvard University, but Harvard did not accept women. So she couldn't go to Harvard. And you know um, <laughs> yeah, she was rejected despite having a letter of support from President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. What the fuck? So she wrote to them and she said, I would gladly change my sex to meet your requirements. But since the way to such change has not been revealed to me, I have no recourse but to appeal to you to change your minds. Are you to tell me that one is as difficult as the other? Oh, my God. So she's basically saying, like, it's a lot easier for you to change your rule about, like, letting a woman into school than it is for me to change Change my my sex. So maybe you could just do that. Yeah. She did postgraduate work at Bullet Hall School of Law at University of California in Berkeley, and her thesis for her master's degree was entitled The Right to Equal Opportunity in Employment, which argued that the right to work is an inalienable right, Mm -hmm. because she had now constantly been rejected, oftentimes on the basis of her sex, uh, for equal work. Yeah. So um, she published that in the California Law Review. After passing the bar exam in 1945, she was hired as the state's first black deputy attorney general in January of the following year. 
That year, the National Council of Negro Women named her its Woman of the Year, and Mademoiselle Magazine did the same in 1947. Love it. In 1950, Murray published States Laws on Race and Color, a determ- an examination and critique of state segregation laws throughout the nation, and she drew on psychological and sociological evidence as well as legal. So... It, it's really interesting what she did here. So this she had brought up when she was in Howard. So basically, like, there had been a decision, a Supreme Court decision in 1896 called Plessy versus Ferguson, mm-hmm. which upheld segregation on the grounds that you could be separate and equal. Mm-hmm. So most of her peers and professors at Howard argued that... Um, the way to get around this or the way to have this overturned is to find arguments for the equal part of that. Like, right. basically, to, to argue they that were not portion equal. of it. That we're yeah. not equal. But she said, she's like, we should argue the separate portion of it because I believe that if you are separated, it is inherently unequal. Agreed. So, yeah. But they were like, that's impractical. That will never work. But right. it did work. She wrote this and basically actually did psychological and sociological studies that wow. showed how, like damaging the separate part of that equation was. Totally. So Thurgood Marshall, then NAACP chief counsel and future Supreme Court justice, Mm -hmm. he called Murray's book the Bible of the civil rights movement. And her approach was actually influential to the NAACP arguments in Brown versus the Board of Education, which is what we were talking about with, you know, Ruby Bridges. Yes. And they drew from the psychological studies that addressed the effects of segregation on students in school. Yeah. And so the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that segregated public schools were unconstitutional. Good. I knew that, but... (laughs) Still good. Still Still good. good. In 1963, she became one of the first to criticize the sexism of the civil rights movement in her speech, The Negro Woman in Her Quest for Equality. In a letter to civil rights leader... A. Philip Randolph, she criticized the fact that in the 1963 March on Washington, no women were invited to make one of the major speeches or be part of its delegation of leaders who went to the White House. So she wrote... I have been increasingly perturbed over the blatant disparity between the major role which Negro women have played and are playing in the crucial grassroots levels of our struggle and the minor role of leadership they have been assigned in the national policymaking decisions. It is indefensible to call a national march on Washington and send out a call which contains the name of not one single woman leader. Yeah. So... What she's saying is something that, like, I feel like black women have said for a long time, which is, like... Black women run these grassroots movements. We're doing all the legwork on the front end. Like, and then we have somebody else um, being our spokesperson. Right, and yeah. basically taking credit for everything. And she's right. Like, not to have anybody, no women got to speak at yeah. the March on Washington is insane. In 1965, she published her landmarked, her landmark article, co-authored by Mary Eastwood, Jane Crow and the Law, Sex Discrimination and Title VII, in the George Washington Law Review. So... Basically, she drew comparisons between discriminatory laws against women and Jim Crow laws. Mm-hmm. So basically saying, like, yes, they're different, but, but all they of these... Work together. Right, and all of these laws, you're fighting for these laws against Jim Crow when there are also all of these laws that keep women from doing things and keep them separated, like, in the workplace and other places. Mm-hmm. So in 1966, she was the co-founder for the National Organization of Women. Love it. And she also attended Yale Law School in 1965. Girl. 
girl. Becoming the first African American to receive a Doctor of the Science of Law degree in the school. Insane. Late, later in 1966, she and Dorothy Kenyon successfully argued White v. Cook, which was a case in which the U.S. Court of Appeals and the Fifth Court ruled that women have the equal right to serve on juries. Okay. When future lawyer and Supreme Court Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote her brief for Reed v. Reed, a 1971 Supreme Court case that, for the first time, extended the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause to women, she added that Murray and Kenyon, she added them as (gasps) co-authors to... That's so cool. Yeah, to her brief because she used their work so heavily whenever she was writing her brief. So it is yeah. wild to think that she's been a Supreme Court justice for that Forever. long. Forever. <laughs> crazy. For so long. Um, Murray served as vice president of Benedict College from 1967 to 68, and she left to teach at Brandeis University in 1968 to 1973, where she received full tenure as a professor. And in addition to teaching law, she actually introduced classes on African-American studies and women's studies, which were both firsts for the university. Wow. So she was like, she went to Brandeis and was like, we're going to do, we're going to do a whole overhaul here. Yeah, we need, we need to have this education Mm -hmm. available for Mm -hmm. people. Yeah, inspired by her connections with women in the Episcopal Church, this woman is insane. Like I can't even imagine Episcopal Church. Where did we come from? (laughs) I I left out. I know this is long. I left out a lot of shit. Like she went to an Episcopal Church uh, whenever she went to North Carolina. You think even her school was an Episcopalian church uh, uh, school? So it was. She must have been one of those people that was so likable. Yeah. Because I feel like it's, you know, she's got friends in low places. You know she, what I mean? Like, you know, she it just has these connections with these people where she must have been not only so intelligent, but so likable. I think she was just kind of a force of nature because she was a very small woman. And yeah. I've heard her I looked even, at pictures of her yeah, while you were talking. I've heard her even described as, like, shrill, almost, like, in the way that she spoke, which lots of women are described as shrill. Yeah. shrill. But, um... And I've heard that some people, a lot of men, I don't think, liked her very much because she said what she wanted, you know, and said what she thought. But I think she was just kind of a force of nature. If she wanted to do something, she found a way to do it. Yeah, but the fact that she had the support... Yeah, she could bring people to her side. Yeah, Yeah. to me, makes me believe that she had something very special about her personality. Yeah, yeah, magnetic charisma. She wasn't just smart. She had something behind her that could uh, push her career forward. Mm -hmm. It's that it factor that you see even in Hollywood and with actors, but this is more of an activist type. Yeah, I think it's the only way to accomplish as much as she has accomplished. She has something special about her. Yeah. So, um, she, when she was 60 years old, she left Brandis to attend seminary at 60. And she was ordained. That's dope. Yes. She was ordained in 1976. And after three years of study, uh, after three years of study, and in 1977, she became the first African-American woman ordained as an Episcopal priest and was among the first generation of Episcopal women priests. So she was the first black woman to be oh an Episcopal priest. Did you know that I got ordained over the holiday break? Oh, so you can marry people now? I can. Good yeah, for you. It takes two minutes. There's a website. I know. I know. <laughs> My friend Trevor is officiating um, Haley's wedding mm-hmm. and we were at the dinner table on Christmas and he was like, you want to be ordained? I can ordain you right now. Like, and he yes, did. I would. I'm Thank like, you so yes, much. I am her mm-hmm. holiness Madigan. Oh. Max is ordained Ooh. too. He's reverend very Dean nice. Maxwell. Yes, it's very official. Uh, when you sign up, it's like, you're hashtag ordained. And I'm like, what? Oh, fantastic. <laughs> hashtag ordained, everybody. So hashtag easy. Ordained. I should do that before they make it more difficult, because I'm sure eventually I'll they will. I'll do it for you right now. <laughs> 
So for the next seven years, Murray worked in a parish in Washington, D.C., focusing primarily on ministry to the sick. So in addition to the work in law that she did, um, she was also a poet and an accomplished writer. She wrote a memoir called Proud Shoes, and it was released in 1956. And this is fascinating. Again, we can't go into it, but it details her family's really complicated history with race, uh, because like I said, she was raised a lot by her grandparents, and her grandmother, Cornelia, was biracial. Um, Her mother, so Polly's great-grandmother, had been a slave who was raped by not only her white slave master, but also his brother. So that's how her grandmother came about. She was a product of Of rape, um, slave rape. So. Um, she was then raised, Cornelia was then raised by her father's sister and educated. So her slave master's sister took her in and educated her. And then she went off and married a freed black man okay. um, who was Polly's great-grandfather. Damn, I gotta read this memoir. Yeah, yeah. This so I want to read it, too. Yeah. It, yeah, so it's called Proud Shoes. And then she released a collection of poems in 1970. Mm. And on July 1st, 1985, Polly Murray died of pancreatic cancer mm. in the house she owned with lifelong friend Miter Springer Kemp in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So, okay, there's all that. I had a hard time kind of, like, fitting this in, but I think right. we should talk about it. Okay. There has been some speculation as to Polly's gender identity. Okay. In some of her writings, she alludes to feeling uncomfortable in her skin as a woman, and although acknowledging the term homosexual in describing others, Murray described herself as having an, quote, inverted sex instinct that caused her to behave as a man attracted to women. And then I apologize for saying go girl so many times during well, but, this episode. But no, like that's where it becomes difficult. There's actually yeah. a lot of writings that um, I'll touch on briefly that it, it's made it kind of hard because well, there, there have wasn't been the language back then. Right. Or, there have been historians who want to refer to her as him, but she never explicitly came out and gave her pronouns. So we also don't know if we want to speculate. In that Too way. Much. Yeah, yeah exactly. We don't, we don't want to go against her wishes or yeah. what she identified as. Exactly. Right? But um, that is, you know, I, I then apologize for referring, saying, go girl, the whole time, <laughs> because we don't know. <laughs> I mean, we don't, we don't know, but I think she referred to herself as she, like, right. throughout her life. Right. And I don't think she had the language. That's exactly right. Exactly. Because... She said that she wanted a monogamous married life, but one in which she was the man. But it's unclear if that means she wanted to be a man or if she just felt like her... Her role. And that her... The way that she felt towards women didn't feel like a lesbian relationship. To me, it almost sounds like she's more of like a gender-fluid type person. Where she's like kind of somewhere in between. Or it could be that her personality... Um, could be, she felt to be more of the uh, role of what a man would be in a relationship. You know, she could have identified still as, um, with some female characteristics, Mm -hmm. but maybe in relationships she felt a more More masculine, masculine. typical role. Yeah, so to me she kind of sounds like gender fluid in a way. Um, the majority of her relationships with uh, were with women whom she described as extremely feminine and heterosexual. Like, she felt like, she felt like the women she was with were 
she liked very like femme. Yes, and okay. the, who? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's basically, I think, what she's saying. I love this person. Yeah, like, she's interesting. She's so, so interesting. Um, she wore her hair short and preferred pants to skirts. And due to her slight build, she would oftentimes pass as a teenage boy. <laughs> In her twenties, she shortened her name from Pauline to Polly, which is more androgynous, Mm -hmm. and at the time of her arrest for the bus segregation protest in 1940, she gave the name Oliver to the arresting officers. Um, She also, and this is, I think, where people start to think maybe she was trans, is she pursued hormone treatments in the 1940s to correct what she saw was a personal imbalance. And I don't know if that means that she's trans or if she felt there was a hormone imbalance that she thought that could be corrected. There's there's many ways to look at it. I don't know... I don't know the history of uh, hormone therapy for the transgender community, Mm -hmm. especially during that time. I don't know if that was a science that was available, but maybe there was something with her just knowledge and being so smart. Mm -hmm. That was a way for her to feel, um, you know, it could have been a psychological, you know, mental hormone imbalance, or it could have been something that she was working toward. Uh, when it came to her gender identity. Right. I mean, I do think that she felt something was physically not right because she even thought, like, that maybe she was intersex. Like, maybe, like, if they were, if she were to be cut open, she might have, like, She male. could have been, yeah. Right, yeah. She she actually, you know, kind of questioned that in her writings. Like, if I were to go and have surgery and if they were to cut me open, would they find male, like, male um, sex organs yeah. as well? You know, I'm, so I I'm think she so was... I'm so fascinated by mm-hmm. her thought process Mm -hmm. being so today you know what I mean right but but obviously also coming from a place of not having the language or understanding and no information out there for her to ever go off of she just had this feeling inherently where she knew both with her sexuality and her gender right but she wasn't able to put the words and the science behind it right and she didn't it's why it's so important that we have these open conversations about like gender fluidity and stuff like that now so that people can know like there's nothing wrong with you like no. if you're having these thoughts, you know, it's, there's nothing wrong with you. It's there's just, nothing. There's nothing wrong with your identity. Right. No. Whatever you identify as is your identity. That's right. Yeah. Um, so historian Rosalind Rosenberg considers Polly to be a transgender man, and she says that that's what she believes. She wrote an entire book biography about her, uh, and in fact wrote whole passages using you know he him pronouns. Yeah. Uh, but even she had to say like. But it's. I had to go back and change some of those because it doesn't feel right to speculate either. It's it's hard to it's, know what the most respectful thing to do is. Right. You know? it's, it's not right to speculate, but it's right to be uh, respectful. Right. And now I think what is good is that you don't have to use just a she or a him right. pronoun. There's they. Yeah, and, and it's possible that had she been around today, maybe she would have gone by they. Well, like, and I wonder if that's the most respectful way to go about it in this day and age when mm-hmm. referencing them is saying them or right, they. Right. Because you don't know. Maybe yeah. that's the most respectful way yeah. Yeah, it's in true. this day and age, you know? Yeah. We don't know. So. What? <sighs> what, what a life. What a... F- I mean, that's... Isn't that the consensus every time we do these or we're like, what are we doing with our lives? Oh, these every people, time I feel like, yeah, I didn't do enough. Yeah, it's it's crazy, but it, these stories are so inspiring and amazing and I love it. Yeah. Um, so I am talking about probably one of the most infamous feminists 
from the second wave on. Okay. I'm talking about Gloria Steinem. I knew you were. As soon as you were like, it's probably one of the most well-known names in yes. feminism. And uh, just so you know, my car's name is Gloria after Gloria Steinem. I have my big feminist sticker Gloria. on the back. So if you're in LA and you see a car with a bunch of, like a rundown looking car with a bunch of stickers with a feminist sticker Girl, on the back. Girl, don't out yourself like that. <laughs> it's me. Um, so, but that's Gloria. She doesn't work very well, but she gets me where I need to go. She makes a lot of noise, but what are you going to do? So I had heard this name my entire life. I know about the Miss Magazine cover. I've seen her face and I've seen her speeches, but I don't really know her whole story. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, you know, we have a lot of young listeners and I don't know if a lot of young listeners would know her story either. So I thought I would go the more not quite forgotten, but maybe not fully discovered feminist fave. And probably misunderstood in a lot of ways. Yes. I think people know the big things. She is a multifaceted woman, and actually I almost did a... I almost did this episode about her grandmother. Oh. But there wasn't enough information. But I will touch on her. So, she is considered to be a liberal feminist. She characterizes herself as a radical feminist. Uh, she, you know, has been kind of pushed into this feminist role, she says, because there wasn't a specific movement for her. But she's kind of been in multiple different movements as her life has gone on. She's mm -hmm. just a, an activist through and through. So she sees herself as being more radical, necessarily, than just um, pigeonholing her into one specific group. Sure. So Gloria Steinem was born on March 25th, 1934, in Toledo, Ohio, to a Presbyterian mother and a Jewish father. Her paternal grandmother was Pauline Perlmutter Steinem, Look her up. She's rad. So many Pauline's. <laughs> she yeah. She was a suffrage. She was a suffragist, a chairwoman of the educational committee of the National Women's Suffrage Association, a delegate to the 1908 International Council of Women, and the first woman to be elected to the Toledo Board of Education. She also rescued family members from the Holocaust. That last part pulled me in, and I couldn't find anything online that would tell me more about That's that. That's crazy. But that she, there's nothing that you can find. You know. But she's from um, Poland. Mm -hmm. And her family moved to Toledo, Ohio. So when she grew up, the grandmother grew up in Toledo, Ohio. And I guess during World War II had some ties to that family still trying to bring them to safety and things like that. Uh, Gloria's family lived and traveled in a trailer where her father, Leo, sold antiques. It was like an antique roadshow. A traveling antique Yeah, they lived in Caravan? This, yeah, pretty much. Um, before Gloria was born, her mother, Ruth, at age 34, had a nervous breakdown, they say, which left her as an invalid. She was then trapped in delusional fantasies that would sometimes turn violent. She couldn't hold down a job, and her personality was forever changed. This is her mom? This is her mom, Ugh. yeah. And she spent a lot of time in and out of mental hospitals. Uh, because of this, when Gloria was 10, her parents separated. So, yeah, her mother suffered from some nervous break and was taken into mental hospitals. That's really sad. It's very sad. And she actually, um, she says later that her mother's illness and treatment from doctors was pivotal in her understanding of social justice. And uh, she showed that women lacked social and political equality. Kind of what you were talking about earlier. Right. With, um, you know, these mental health institutions at the time. Right. Especially, like, if you cannot... If you don't have the same amount of rights, you can't advocate for yourself. Like, right. In and the same even, way. even the uh, statement of having a nervous breakdown, you know, I was always told that my grandmother had kind of a nervous breakdown um, when my mom was young, and it kind of left her a very different woman. And there wasn't really a language at the time for what specifically 
maybe brought that on, what her mental illness was, anything like that. Mm -hmm. There wasn't any knowledge on that. And I think that especially with her being a woman, calling it a nervous breakdown is definitely more of a female Right. It's almost like hysteria, right? Yeah, exactly. It's just like there's these things that you can say that almost diminish it in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, she had a nervous breakdown. Whatever. Yeah. She's emotional. And it, yeah, I think it insinuates that their constitutions are like inherently weaker. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which is not necessarily what happen there. No. I mean, look at nowadays we do still use the words nervous breakdown but not nearly this as often, and it's, you and know. And it's usually referring to something less severe. Like I would consider Britney Spears in 2007 to be a nervous breakdown. Yeah, I mean, with, without, <laughs> you know what I mean? without Which, knowing what else was going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what we just saw, what mm-hmm. we saw. Yeah. yeah. So Gloria graduated from Smith College, then went on to India as a Chester Bulls Asian Fellow, where she was briefly on the Supreme Court of India as a law clerk. Interesting. Right? There's so much shit about her that I didn't know. And by the way, I'm leaving so much stuff out. It's I del- impossible not to. I had four pa- I had more than four pages, and I was not even done. So I went back, and I deleted a lot of stuff, but there was so much about her that I didn't know, and it was so fascinating. So, <clears throat> when she returned to the United States, she became the director of the Independent Research Service, which was actually funded by the CIA, and there's a lot of kind of, like, question and lore around all of this hmm. um, being funded by the CIA. Uh, she worked to send non-communist American students to the 1959 World Youth Festival, and finally, in 1960, she was hired as the first employee of Help magazine. <laughs> I say it like that because it has an exclamation point at the end, like the Beatles song. What does it mean? Help. No, I mean... somebody. <laughs> the magazine, like, what is it for? It didn't say. Okay. I don't know. Help. All right. Help. Well, she's, I mean, she's a writer. She worked for Help Magazine, whatever. Um, Esquire Magazine gave Gloria her first, quote, serious assignment, which was regarding contraception. In 1962, the article was about how women were forced to choose between having a career and marriage, which at the time, marriage means then bearing children. Yes. The article preceded the feminine mystique by only one year. So her article speaking about the choices between being a career woman and what that meant in society and being a, a, a wife and what that meant in society, which is a similar idea to the feminine mystique, was actually a year before mm-hmm. that book came out. In 1963, while working for Show Magazine, Gloria was employed as a Playboy bunny at the New York Playboy Club. Now, this is an image that I think is very popular of Gloria Steinem in the 60s as a Playboy bunny, going undercover, mm-hmm. learning about all this stuff. This is something I think that most people kind of know about. This would be probably the biggest thing that most like most people would know about exactly. Gloria Steinem. Yeah. So the article written about her time as a bunny was called A Bunny's Tale, which showed a photo of Gloria in the bunny uniform, which we just discussed. The article detailed how women were being treated at this club by publicizing the exploitative working conditions, especially the sexual demands made of them. In 1964, she conducted an interview with John Lennon. She wrote for a show called That Was the Week It Was. The Week That Was. Something like Weird I, title I feel of like, show. Yeah, I feel like they could have done a better job and with that title. Maybe that's why it wasn't very popular. That was in 1965. Uh, she wrote especially on a segment called Surrealism in Everyday Life and was eventually hired at New York Magazine. In 1969, she covered an abortion speakout, which was held in a church basement in Greenwich Village. Gloria herself had had an abortion at the age of 22, and she says that being at the speakout was like a light bulb moment for her. She says she didn't begin her life as an active feminist until that day. She recalls it, abortion, is supposed to make us 
a bad person, but I must say I never felt that. I used to sit and try to figure out how old the child would be, trying to make myself feel guilty, but I never could. I think the person who said, honey, if men could get pregnant, abortion would be a sacrament, was right. Speaking for myself, I knew it was the first time I had taken responsibility for my own life. I wasn't going to let things happen to me. I was going to direct my life, and therefore it felt positive. But still, I didn't tell anyone, because I knew that out there, it wasn't, and then in parentheticals, positive. Also in 1969, she published an article, After Black Power, Women's Liberation, which brought her national fame as a feminist leader. Because of this article, she went on to campaign for the Equal Rights Amendment, testifying before the Senate. In July of 1971, she became one of over 300 women who founded the National Women's Political Caucus. She delivered a speech titled, Address to the Women of America. In that speech, she says, This is no simple reform. It really is a revolution. Sex and race, because they are easy and visible differences, have been the primary ways of organizing human beings into, mm -hmm. into superior and inferior groups and into cheap labor of which this system still depends. Mm -hmm. We are talking about a society in which there will be no roles other than those chosen or those earned. We are talking about humanism. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And I think that that is the most... I don't understand why that portion of her speech isn't used more frequently in feminist dialogue. I agree. Because I think She it, is seen very much as a white feminist. She is, but I do think that that portion of her speech most easily and concisely defines what feminism is, mm -hmm. right? It's like we are talking about a society in which the only roles that are assigned are ones that are earned by merit and not from, like, physical differences because we as human beings have done that. It's like yeah. race and gender are the most the easily most identifiable, um, you know, differences. And and that's what feminism is. And she and says humanism, but that's what feminism is. But you've... Haven't you spoken in the past about a lot of the black community referring to humanism? Um, yeah, I mean... Black feminists, a lot of black feminists call it womanism rather than feminism. That's right. Uh, because of the issues between black civil rights and feminism in the past because of white feminism essentially yeah. because white feminism has has for so many years i feel like it's starting to turn around now but white feminism did kind of take it the dictated. word feminism yeah um for so long that black women decided to start calling themselves womanists i like yeah that. another thing she's probably most famous for is that in 1972 she and dorothy Pittman hughes started miss magazine it's 3,000 test copies sold nationwide in eight days. Within weeks, Miss Magazine had received 26,000 subscription orders and over 20,000 reader letters. So that shit got popular mm -hmm. real fast. Well, anytime there's like a void, right? Like someone needed to fill this void. There wasn't a desire for this kind of content. Yeah. Someone needed to create it. So... Gloria Steinem grew up as a big fan of Wonder Woman. So in 1973, she was the key player in the restoration of Wonder Woman's costume and powers. She was offended that the most famous female superhero hero had been depowered. So she put Wonder Woman on the cover of her first issue of Miss Magazine. <laughs> so I think she is a lot to be thankful for the way that we perceive Wonder Woman. Absolutely. In 1978, she wrote a semi-satirical essay for Cosmo titled, If Men Could Menstruate where she concluded the essay that in such a world, menstruation would become a badge of honor with men comparing their relative sufferings rather than a source of shame. Did you, Which did you, is so true. Did you watch um, Morgan, not Morgan Murphy, um, Michelle Wolf's new stand-up? No, um, Max isn't a big fan, so we love watching... I like her. It's the it's her voice that bugs him, which I can't really argue, but my mom watched it. You it know was, what's you know, watch it. really weird is, like, Anthony likes her voice. 
Oh. And her voice is weird. Her, her voice is grating. I mean, I I enjoy when people have interesting voices. Sometimes it can be distracting. Sometimes it can be uh, it can add to. But she them. has a whole segment about like if men could have periods. Yeah, yeah. Well, and like you know, there's that whole thing of like when men get sick, it's such a bigger deal than when women get sick. You know, it's like they would compare their suffering. So like, oh, my cramps are worse. No, my cramps are worse. Well, well and I it, have to. It would. Yeah, it would totally be a completely different thing. It wouldn't be seen as weak because men wouldn't be able to frame it that way. So they exactly. would have to reframe it as something that's like. And it wouldn't be a source of shame. It wouldn't right. be a shameful thing. Exactly. Also, in 1972, she ran as a delegate for Shirley Chisholm. Oh, hey. Didn't know that. In 1984, Gloria was arrested along with a number of other members of Congress and civil rights activists for disorderly conduct outside the South African embassy while protesting against the South African apartheid system. During the Clarence Thomas sexual harassment scandal in 1991, she voiced her support for Anita Hill and suggested that one day Anita Hill herself would sit on the Supreme Court. Ugh, if only. I know, right? The quote, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle, was actually not coined by Steinem, but... Irina Dunn, an Australian activist, when they started uh, releasing that quote and using her name underneath it, she was like, no, 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 I didn't I didn't start that. This other woman did. Well, God bless her for doing that, but unfortunately, it still lingers on as a quote. It's credited to Steinem it every is. time I see it. Yeah. So what a bummer for it, Irina it, Dunn. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was popularized, I think, by Steinem, but yes, she made it a point to say, I didn't say that first, which I think is great. Steinem has been involved in multiple political campaigns, such as the 1968 election, where she was firmly against the Vietnam War. She originally supported Eugene McCarthy, but went on to support George McGovern. In 1972, she was reluctant to support McGovern, however, as she felt she was mistreated by his staff. When McGovern removed the abortion issue from his platform, Mm. Steinem wrote against his decision. Well, I mean, and McGovern is the one who ended up getting the nomination the year that Shirley Chisholm ran for president. Exactly. So I imagine, like... Once you lost Chisholm, it's like, well, what do we do? <laughs> yeah, I guess we got to go with this guy. In 2004, she voted uh, criticism of George W. Bush's administration, saying, There has never been an administration that has been more hostile to women's equality, to reproductive freedom as a fundamental human right, and has acted on that hostility. If he's elected in 2004, abortion will be criminalized in this country. And I'm like, girl, wait for Trump. <laughs> yeah. Just you wait. At a Planned Parenthood event, she declared Bush a, quote, danger to health and safety, citing his antagonism to the Clean Water Act, reproductive freedom, sex sex education, and AIDS relief. Steinem was supportive of both Democratic nominees in 2008 elections, saying that both Senators Clinton and Obama are civil rights advocates, feminists, environmentalists, and critics of the war in Iraq. Both have resisted pandering to the right, something that sets them apart from any Republican Mm -hmm. candidate, including John McCain. Both have Washington and foreign policy experience. George W. Bush did not when he ran for president. Oh, fucking nepotism, man. Yeah, and she received criticism for downplaying the importance of John McCain's time as a prisoner of war in Vietnam. But she argues that was the media and the political world are too admiring of militarism and all its guises, she says. I mean, I I do agree with her. I mean, I think anybody who faces that kind of... Like, being a prisoner of war would be Like, recognize it, but that doesn't mean, like, you know, our political system holds that as such a high honor, which I understand, because the military is such a political... Yeah, yeah. I, I think role. I think don't support militarism, uh, but acknowledge anyone who's been through 
torture. Well, and that's the thing is that <laughs> you know? she was not downplaying right, of course. his torture. She said, you know, even John McCain isn't uh, viewing, you know, reproductive issues, the war in Iraq, different things like that, the same as Clinton and mm-hmm. Obama. Yeah. That's all she was saying. She wasn't trying to right. discredit his yeah. prisoner of war status. Absolutely. I see what you're saying. Yes. But people, of course, came for her and said, mm-hmm. you know, what about this? So she eventually sided with Clinton because of her broader experience saying the country was in such bad shape that they would need two terms of Clinton and two terms of Obama to clean up this mess. Yeah. Oh, if only, right? <laughs> She also wrote an op-ed for the New York Times stating that gender, not race, is the most restricting force in America because black men were given the right to vote a half century before women of exactly any race were allowed to vote. This is why people think she's a white feminist. Yes. Because, wow. So this this is what happened. She had critics saying that that white women received the right to vote in 1920 where black men and women could not vote until the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and some were lynched for trying. And the thing that I like about Gloria Steinem, while I believe because it is so easy as a white woman, especially during the second wave and ongoing, to remain in a very white feminist mindset. And the reason that I wanted to mention her shortcomings is because I believe that she has learned a lot from what she said and from her critics. She's not a person who gets criticism and then completely says you're wrong Mm -hmm. or I never did that she's able to kind of look at those pieces and be able to learn from that and I think that's why she's still relevant today right no and I you know I'm actually I like Gloria Steinem but I will argue that that's something that she shouldn't have had to been told and like I think that that's when like that's when people of color get frustrated. Yeah. Because it's like Gloria Steinem, you were around, you existed within both, like, the women's rights movement and the civil rights movement in the 1960s. There's no reason why you had to be told that this was inaccurate. That's saying that women were more oppressed than people of color. And I think that she could have worded it in a way where, you know, we were just talking about the NAACP and how and the sexism that surrounds the civil rights movement. And I think that she could have put it in a way where it didn't seem like she was talking about herself. And like if she was talking about um, black women. Sure. Yes. I if think you wanted to explicitly say women of color. Yes. But she are the most oppressed or, you know, women trans women of color, if you were to say something like that, I think that that argument would hold more water. But to say across the board, there were so many white women who benefited from from racism yeah um that you really can't make that statement yeah exactly so you know she's yeah, not, not perfect not perfect not but... perfect at all in 2016 she supported bernie sanders and then later endorsed clinton <clears throat> in 1986 she was diagnosed with breast cancer and trigeminal neural neuralgia oh i don't know what that is in 1994 in 2000 she married christian bale's dad David Vale. What? Yes, you didn't know that? No. Yeah. I once read Christian this article. Bale's mom-in-law, or stepmom, yeah. is... Is Gloria Steinem. Wow. Well, I think his dad is dead now. But oh. yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it's... I read an article once where it's like, famous people you didn't know were related, and I read that, and I was like, that's weird. Very. <clears throat> well, they're not related, but, but by But yes, yeah, I'm stepmom. Yep. So these are some of her political positions. She is against genital mutilation and male circumcision. Okay. She helped being um, she helped bring attention to female genital mutilation to America to the American public. She states in Miss in a Miss article in 1979 
The real reasons for genital mutilation can only be understood in the context of the patriarchy. Men must control women's bodies as means of production and thus repress the independent power of women's sexuality. On male circumcision, she says, these patriarchal controls limit immense sexuality too. That's why men are asked symbolically to submit the sexual part of themselves and their sons to the patriarchal authority, which seems to be the origin of male circumcision, a proactive that, even as advocates admit, is medically unnecessary 90% mm -hmm. of the time. Mm -hmm. Speaking for myself, I stand with my brothers in eliminating that practice too. She also speaks about pornography. Steinem has criticized pornography, which she distinguishes from erotica, saying erotica is as different from pornography as love is from rape. Focusing on the distinction between consent and domination and criticizing the lack of equal power between the sexes in porn. And she even goes on to speak about, um, like, gay porn and how even, like, lesbian and gay porn has a certain power dynamic, has a mm -hmm. certain view of the male gaze. Sure. Things like that. She has also been criticized for her views on transgender sexual reassignment surgery from a 1977 article, but in 2013 showed her support for the transgender community, recognizing her past shortcomings. And that's a big thing that I feel is the biggest difference between, like, the second wave feminists and the fourth wave feminists is a lot of the um, LGBTQ plus uh, issues. Well, they're, yeah, I mean, because I had heard that, too, that... Um that she's considered a TERF, which is a trans-exclusionary yeah. radical feminist. But she has since... Well, that was from a 1977 article, and I think, from what I've read, she has worked to Yeah, our understanding has, that. has changed. Yeah. yeah, and I think that for her, you know, she had a, she had a strong um, force against genital mutilation and circumcision, and from what I read, her understanding of gender reassignment surgery was... Um, kind of another way of of enforcing genitalia hmm. mutilation. Interesting. So I think that our understanding of, you know, a gender reassignment surgery back in the 70s was very different than our understanding of it today. I'm not trying to make excuses for her, but it seems like she has acknowledged her shortcomings sure. at the time. I mean, that, that was almost 40 years later, you know, when she came out in 2013, when that was brought up again, and mm -hmm. she was like, that is not my belief today. And I think that's the most important thing to remember about um, being a feminist is that the things you and I are discussing even right now in 40 years, we could be saying, well, what about this, that, and the other thing? Right. We're not even touching those topics. Mm -hmm. She's not perfect. No feminist is perfect. No person is perfect. And I think time reveals a lot. Right. You know? She has received multiple awards and published many written works. If I were to go to, into all of them, we would be here until next Tuesday. Uh, she is known as a leader of second wave feminism and has shown how one can go seamlessly from a second wave way of thinking all the way into the fourth wave. She continues to speak out on feminist issues and continues to be one of the most recognizable faces in feminism. Amen. Amen. In, in her word. <sighs> Amen. So I could have gone on with that for so much longer. Yeah. I needed like two pages of notes. So that is nowhere near the entirety of Gloria Steinem. That is a very like wikipedia-based biography.com based short story that i just gave everybody there's so much more to her she is fascinating um i like reading about feminists that have their shortcomings and about how times have changed mm -hmm. but i love the fact that she has remained very steadfast in her beliefs she hasn't wavered from those beliefs and that she has been able to adapt 
through generations of feminism. And yeah. I think that's really admirable. Absolutely. Well, that's awesome. I yeah. mean, I probably should have edited mine down uh, on Polly Murray No, a bit. because I loved it. And I had no... She, because people know who Gloria Steinem is, they can they remember her name, Google it. But Polly Murray is not a name that is like well known. I'm glad that you took that time and told but, us. About yeah, it. I'm so glad that we were able to cover these women today. I think it's a great start to the new year. Yes, it's very we started exciting. In our favorite way, we did. doing some book report style uh, research. Yeah, so we're happy to be back. We hope you guys are happy that we're back. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Yeah. If you have suggestions on future uh, episode topics. We would love to hear those. You can go ahead and email us at um, neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. I just want to say really quick that we did receive some emails while we were on our break oh, with yeah. episode ideas. Yes. I want everybody to know who emailed us that those suggestions have been put into our list of yes. episodes that yeah. we have. So thank you, thank you, thank you because it really helped us during this break kind of look at some of the things that our listeners want and um, they have been added to the list. So if they're not, you know, done right away, know that they are in our repertoire. It mm-hmm. will be covered eventually. Yeah, so yeah. thank you, thank you for, for doing that. And please, like, we love getting episode suggestions because sometimes we're like, what the fuck do we talk about? I know. There are some weeks that we end up feeling stuck. So it's good to have those kind of, like, in our back pocket that totally. we can look at and, yeah. and reach out to. Um, so if you would like to follow us on Instagram, please do so at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. You can also follow us on Twitter again. I feel guilty mentioning this because I don't update our Twitter as much no. as I should. But if you want to, if that's what you like to use, you can follow us on Twitter at Yanf Podcast, Y-A-N-F Podcast. We also have a Facebook business and group page. Feel free to leave us a review on our business page. Mm-hmm. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Yes. We love getting new reviews there. We do, and I, I'm going to mention, because we, I think I forgot to mention it in the news episode, I went into our uh, reviews, as mm-hmm. you know, yesterday, yes. and there was somebody who had mentioned us talking over each other, and, you know, sound quality, sometimes our sound quality has not always been the best, and when it comes to us talking over each other, uh, one, that's just kind of how we converse. Um, I'm sorry if that causes anxiety, as this one reviewer said. But also, sometimes it's hard to uh, get your point in. You gotta jump in. Gotta find your way. And we are aware that this is something that we do, and we are going to try our best to minimize that. Yes, absolutely. So work with us. We do the best we can. Yes. That's all I have to say on that matter. Okay. So um, we do love getting your reviews. So do, do. feel free to leave us yes. reviews there on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen to us on Radio Public. It's free for you. It helps us a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And I think that is everything. It is, you guys. So with all of that being said, we encourage you to rage on. Bye. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.